you again for this time. We ask that you would just help us focus on your word. And as we hear the rain uh, coming down hard and, and um, there's local flooding going on and, and uh, we hear the thunder, uh, Lord, we know that you want to speak to our hearts. And I pray that you would do that. So help us to just focus on what you have for us. And as we talk about the tabernacle, and uh, Lord, that you would just bless this night and things would settle down and, um, and that we would just be able to just, um, just receive from you what you have for us. And so, Lord, we come again tonight as a people desiring to hear from you. And we thank you that we're in this place and it's dry and the lights are on. And uh, Lord, we just pray that we would just uh, be free from any distractions. And, and Lord, whatever you have for us, we... We, we know, Lord, that you desire to bless more than anything. So bless the children and, and the youth as they're in their classes. And uh, bless our study as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, it was good to, uh, to, to be back um, last week as I was gone. Uh, took a week of vacation of much-needed rest and relaxation. And, um, you know, I was thinking about the children of Israel as I was gone the first couple of days that uh, that I was on vacation last week, I ended up cleaning out the garage. And I know it's not much of a vacation, but it needed to be done. But then I grabbed the kids and we headed up to the high country. And um, it was a perfect week to do it because it was so hot down here, wasn't it? And um, and we were on the backside of Rocky Mountain National Park, and uh, we were up in the you know tromping through the uh, Comanche Peak Wilderness area and the Naoti Wilderness area. And uh, just beautiful country up there, doing some fishing, just really enjoying it up there. Um, but the reason I was thinking about the children of Israel is because staying in a tent for about, you know, three days and, uh, and that many nights, you know, uh, it got um, pretty hard uh, for me uh, being older. It used to be uh, when I was in college about 30 years ago, I could go up in those hills with my friends and set up a little tent and... Uh, you know, put in some jerky and, and tromp around those hills and never even think about and stay up there for three or four days. Now being older, it's a little bit harder on my body sleeping on the ground. And, um, and you know, I woke up stiff as a board. You know, it was hard, uh, aching, and um, I can't tromp around those hills as much as I used to be able to. But I was thinking about how difficult it must have been for the children of Israel that they lived in tents for 40 years, didn't they? And they were out in the wilderness. It was a wilderness that is a lot different than when we think of wilderness here in Colorado. We, we think of the Comanche Peak Wilderness, the Naoti, the Never Summer Wilderness, those, those peaks that are very beautiful. And, and being up in those meadows and those open spaces, you know, just laying there. And, of course, it was dry and it was sunny and it was um, just kind of looking around and the beauty of everything and the elk and the moose and everything else that we saw while we were up there. Um, it's a lot different than where these guys were for 40 years. They were in a hot, dry desert. And if you've ever been in that region, if you've been in the southern part of Israel, if you've gone over there, if you've been in Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula or, you know, the area of Arabia, it is a desert that is extremely rocky. It is barren. It is mountainous. It is very hot and very, very dry. So it would be extreme conditions. You know, and after three days of coming out of, of camping and aching and, and, you know, full of dirt and dust and things like that, feeling dirty, I can't imagine what it was like for them. For 40 years, camping around out there in that harsh condition, in the hot weather, not, you know, pretty at all. And it was difficult for them. Well, as we see, the children of Israel would spend 40 years out there in the wilderness because of their unbelief and because of their disobedience. We're going to see that clearly as we continue on in the book of Exodus and as we also move in to Leviticus and Numbers, how they would complain against the provision of the Lord. They would murmur against Moses and Aaron. And the Lord said, this generation is going to stand out here in the wilderness. And they would for 40 years. And it would be that new generation that would go into the promised land. And we've discussed how it is oftentimes in Christians' lives that they find themselves out in a wilderness experience spiritually because of unbelief or because of, of disobedience, because they're not trusting in the Lord. They're not rooted and grounded in God's Word. So we've looked at those lessons. As we move into Exodus chapter 25, we're going to talk about another tent. This is a very special tent. And, of course, in chapter 25 through chapter 30, we're going to see 
that it's the blueprint to the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, also called the sanctuary or the tent of meeting. And so remember, as we left off in chapter 24, that it was Moses, he's up there on the mountain, and he is there, and the Lord is speaking to him, giving him the law. And the Lord is also showing him the pattern to this tabernacle. So as he's up on the mountain, chapter 25, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart you shall take my offering and so we see here first of all in in this tabernacle that's going to be shown to moses the lord is uh instructing moses when you go back down from this mountain you're going to tell the children of israel that we're going to construct a tabernacle and he's going to say that the tabernacle is going to be constructed that i might meet with my people and keep that in mind because every time that I've heard a Bible teacher, you know, or pretty much most of them, they'll talk about that the tabernacle was built so the people could be with God, so the people could be in the presence of the Lord and see the presence of the Lord. But the emphasis always here in this text and in, in the Old Testament is the tabernacle was built so the Lord could be with his people. He says that I might dwell among you and meet with my people. And the thing to remember is that God always initiates and we respond. And in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, the Word became flesh and what? Tabernacled among us. And so Jesus Christ, God in the person of Jesus Christ, came to be with us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the Lord comes and he's going to tell Moses as we see that I may dwell with them, with my people. He initiates and they're going to respond to that. First of all, how they will respond to that was through worship and giving, and, and giving of these articles for uh, the tabernacle. And so we see um, that he says, first of all, for everyone, verse 2, who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And so we see a very important principle when it comes to giving to the Lord. First of all, we are to give how? With an attitude of willingness, with an attitude of, Lord, I want to give to you. I give freely, I give willingly, and we see that all throughout the scriptures. The Lord didn't say to them, you have to give. He didn't say, you better give or else. He says, I want the children of Israel to give, and he's going to explain here the articles that they were to give. And I want them to give willingly from their hearts. And that's an important principle for you and I as we give because Paul, he reiterates that in 2 Corinthians, doesn't he? He's talking to the Corinthian church that was a little bit uh, of a, a group of people, a group of Christians that held tight to their money. And so Paul was talking to them about an offering that he wanted to take to Jerusalem. And he says, Follow the example of the Macedonian churches. That is, for example, the Church of Philippi. The Church of Philippi we see uh, in the New Testament that uh, they were ones that they would give to Paul. They would give uh, out of their poverty. They would give out of their persecution. They would give freely and willingly, and they gave with a cheerful heart. And so Paul says there in 2 Corinthians that, that God loves a cheerful giver. So that's the way that we are to give. And I think that there's a lot of, as we've talked about this before, there's a lot of, of um, bad teaching when it comes to giving in the church today. Of course, you have the whole faith movement and, and the faith seed people and the prosperity movement that come along and pervert what it means to really give to the Lord and give out of your heart. And you are to give just to a mass and, and treating God like a celestial Santa Claus. And, and so people see that and they feel after a while they get involved with those things that they you know, were deceived, they, they um, have false hopes, all these things. And I'm not saying that God doesn't bless us when we give. He says that he blesses us. But the thing is we don't give to where we want to amass and we can get you know our homes that we claim and our boats that we claim and focus on the temporal things it is always store up your treasures in heaven focus on the eternal things and god does come along and say this is an area that that i want you and says to us in malachi test me in this area in other words see that i'm going to provide for you and bless for you as you do give but there's a right attitude of a heart and so Paul says he loves a cheerful giver. And one of the things that, that we have always tried to do is make it that this sanctuary here at this place, at Calvary Chapel, that you give willingly, that you give freely, 
that you really give with your hearts. So you don't hear me pressing you guys that you have to give or giving some false doctrine about if you give that you're going to be wealthy and receive a hundredfold back and, and you can claim your boats and your homes and all of this. Matter of fact, one of my kids came to me the other day. They were watching Christian TV and they said, you know, there's a pastor on TV or a TV preacher and he was saying just pray to your wallet and speak to your wallet and the money will multiply in it. And I thought, you know, is that the kind of thing that we're seeing in the church today? And so the Lord will bless us. And, it, it, and it's not always financial blessing, but the thing is, here is the thing, that he says you, that you give of my offering, that you're given to him, that you're given to eternity's values and views, that you are investing in the kingdom of God, and God sees it, and he will reward you as he sees fit. And so he will reward you in eternity, he will reward you even presently, and you will see that he will show himself strong on your behalf. But you give to invest for the kingdom of God. And as you give here at Calvary Chapel, I pray that you understand that you're given to the Lord. And uh, you believe in the ministry, what the Lord is doing here at Calvary Chapel and what we're involved in. And certainly, um, as you give, some of the money is, is going to be designated so uh, we can have the lights on and have air conditioning on, that we can clean the church and have this facility and, and things like that. But it's a place where people can come and be blessed and hear God's word and grow in God's word and, and that they have a place where they can be prayed for. And it's a place that honors the Lord in everything that we do here and I pray that we would do that in our giving and the way that we also spend the resources that we have that we see it as we're investing in the kingdom of God and that you know we are storing up our treasures in heaven so the right attitude give with a cheerful heart and I pray for you and you've heard me you know say this before that if you can't give with a cheerful heart and a willing heart and freely then keep it put it back in your pocket and people say boy you know how to do fundraising and stuff but you know what I don't want to do fundraising I want the Lord to speak to you on giving and for you to give saying, Lord, you know what? I am investing in what the kingdom of God in, in the ministry and the work of the Lord. And you've called me to do that because he does call us to give. And, and I want to give as you put on my heart. And, and, and it's such a wonderful way to give, to give freely and to give with a heart that is towards the Lord and a heart that desires to do that. And so we see that you are to, to take my offering in verse 3, and this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, and bronze, and blue, purple, and scarlet, thread, fine linen, and goat's hair, ram skin dyed red, badger skins, and a wood, oil for the light and species for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, uh, oxy stones and stones to be set in the ephod in the breastplate and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them that I may dwell among my people and according to all that I show you that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern all its furnishings just so you shall make it and so a couple things here the specific materials that are listed for us gold silver and bronze remember that the children of Israel would take the spoils from Egypt, didn't they? As they would leave Egypt, the Lord said, go to the Egyptians, take the spoils. And so the Egyptians at that time, of course, Egypt was in a zenith and in the, the height of her power and prosperity and riches. Um, Egypt was the most powerful nation on the face of the earth here at the time that the children of Israel were in bondage to them. And um, we know that they had a lot of gold. They had a lot of riches. And so the Lord said, go to the Egyptians right before they would leave. The Egyptians gave them gold, gave them silver, gave them the spoils, and said, get out before we end up all dying here in Egypt because the plagues have been coming down. And so they left with gold and silver. So this is the gold and silver that is coming. And we're going to see that gold is going to be used in the furnishings of the tabernacle and the making of the tabernacle. They were to also use and to give in this offering different different color threads and animal skins and in acacia wood. Now, acacia trees grow out there in the um, desert in that area. If any of you have been to Israel and you've been down by the Dead Sea area and in the Negev Desert, you see those little trees out there. Those are acacia trees. And acacia trees are very, very uh, hard. It's a hard wood. It's, um, it, it doesn't um, rot at all. It's very disease resistant. 
I mean, it has to be a tough tree to live out in those conditions. And so as you look at in that area of the desert, there's those little trees out there, they're Achaia trees, and that's what they're going to use to make the boards and the Ark of the Covenant and other things that they're going to be instructed to make out of that wood. And so uh, go out and, and harvest the Achaia woods, the different stones that they were to give, oil and incense and spices, all to use for the tabernacle. Now as we go through this, we're going to see that the tabernacle, the furnishings are going to be described to us, and then also the tabernacle itself. And now here I got a, an illustration that, that Bonnie Lesser gave to us that we can look at, and I put it up because I think as we go through this, it's going to help you see visually. Hopefully you can see it, and I know you may not be able to see it super well in the back, but you can come up and look at it. Kind of what the tabernacle, how it was constructed, how it was laid out, uh, the, the furnishings that were there as we go through that is going to help you get a visual picture of what the tabernacle was like. Now remember the tabernacle was a temporary structure. It was, a, it was basically a tent that we're going to see that was put up and you recall that I've already talked to you about that as we go through the Old Testament that it speaks of and points to and and it illustrates Jesus Christ doesn't it and so um, Jesus would say to the religious leaders there in John's gospel that you search the scriptures and in them you think you have eternal life in other words you religious leaders are going through thinking that you have eternal life and and looking at the law and keeping the ordinances and, and all of this you think you have eternal life in all of that but you need to understand something that these are they which testify of me in other words it speaks of me it points to me it illustrates me I'm the one that's going to give you eternal life because the law can't save you and the sacrifices are only temporary till I come and I'm a sacrifice once and for all for the sins of the world so these are they which testify of me is what he was saying and as we go through the tabernacle we see that it speaks of Jesus and we go through the furnishings we can see how it reminds us and gives us a picture of Jesus so that's what we're going to do so the tabernacle on the outward is going to be made of animal skins these animal skins that are going to be collected but inwardly it's going to be made of boards and it's going to be overlaid with gold and and it speaks of Jesus just in that because in Isaiah chapter 53 speaking of the Messiah that is to come we know that Isaiah prophesied that his appearance, that there would be no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus was an ordinary-looking Jewish man when he was walking the earth. There was nothing special physically, his appearance, that would draw people to him. He wasn't 10 feet tall. He didn't glow in the dark. He didn't have a big halo. He didn't float above the ground. He was an ordinary-looking you know, Jewish man. He was a carpenter. He had rough, rugged hands. And, and, and I'm sure that he was, you know, scruffy looking because he, he didn't have a home he said you know foxes have holes and birds of the airs have nests but a son of man has nowhere to lay his head and so he was a regular man and there was nothing that would you would look at that you would be attracted to him physically but inwardly of course just as in that tabernacle you would come to this tent and you would look and say what's the big deal about this tent it's just and on the outward it was ordinary looking it was made of animal skins inwardly in that tabernacle as you would go into the holy places we're going to see boy it's really doing something isn't it out there as you would go it would be a kale wood that would be lined in the in the holy place and uh, and then it would be overlaid with gold and then you would have the seven branch menorah and it would be reflecting off the gold and it would be very beautiful in there outwardly plain looking inwardly gold speaks of what it speaks of divinity it speaks of purity and of course Jesus you know the son of God God in the person of Jesus Christ divine and completely pure and and so that in itself speaking of Jesus Christ so that's what we're going to be talking about as we go through this and notice here again let them build a tabernacle that I may dwell among them God dwelt in that tabernacle and of course we're going to talk about the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat now the Lord said, I'm going to dwell between the cherubim and I'll meet with my people there. And it was a place where the blood of the sacrifice would be sprinkled on that mercy seat, um, as we'll get to in just a minute. But you know what? As you go to the New Testament, that it would be the tabernacle, of course, verse 14 of John chapter 1, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us that he walked among us and he came to us because of his love for us because he took care of the sin problem and in first corinthians chapter three it talks about the church being what 
the temple of God. And of course, the tabernacle would be eventually replaced by the first temple that Solomon, that was a permanent structure that Solomon built in about 950 B.C. That would be destroyed in, in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. And then Zerubbabel would come back after the 70-year captivity of Babylon and rebuild the second temple. It would be remodeled by Herod, and that temple would be destroyed in 70 A.D. But then the Lord has been building a new temple ever since then, hasn't he? And that is the church. So collectively, we're called the temple of God, and he dwells in the midst of his people, doesn't he? And he's here tonight, even though it's thundering and it's raining very hard, he's here in this place. And he desires to speak to our hearts. And he desires to meet with us. And it pleases him when we come together corporately to learn of him and to, and to pray to him and to fellowship with him and to worship him. He's here amongst his people. It reminds me of what we saw in the book of Revelation in chapter 1, that he stands in the midst of seven golden lampstands, and those lampstands represented what? It represented the churches. And so he stands in the midst of the churches. But also we know that, that the New Testament talks about our bodies individually are what? The temple of God as well. And so Paul says, here's the mystery. That is, I'm revealing something to you that wasn't previously known, and that is Christ dwells in you. He puts, makes himself at home is what literally that word dwell means. He, he lives in our hearts. And I think that if you were to tell Moses or you were to tell Aaron back in that time or any of the high priests that were the only ones that were allowed to go through that veil into the Holy of Holies there, and it was a very awesome thing to be able to do that into the tangible presence of God, to say, you know what, the time is going to come in the new covenant where Christ is going to dwell in the believer's heart, they would be absolutely amazed by that, that Christ dwells in your heart by the, by the Holy Spirit. He lives in our hearts. He, he, he is there, and he gives us a new heart. And it's a wonderful thing for you and for me as Christians to realize that and understand that. So that I may dwell amongst my people. And then uh, we see something here that's an important principle for you and I to understand and that is in verse 9, that he's showing Moses the pattern of all its furnishings, of the pattern to the tabernacle. In other words, Moses, you know, when the Lord said, Moses, you're going to build a tabernacle. I'm going to dwell among my people. Moses didn't have to say, okay, I need to come up with a design. And um, he wasn't one that had to worry about it. He said, Moses, you're going to build it to the pattern that I am going to show to you. And that's an important principle for you and for me. Because the Lord, through his word here, as we study his word, he has a pattern. He has a way that you and I are to live for him and to walk with him, to fellowship with him and to worship him. And so when we come to the Lord, we don't have to say, okay, Lord, how is it that you want me to walk? You know, how is it that I am to build my life? We build it upon the pattern that he's given to us in his word, in his commandments that are given to us. And we say, yes, Lord, when it comes to being the man of God or the woman of God that you want me to be, your word tells me how I can pattern myself after the way that you want me to live in the way that pleases you. When it comes to being the father that you want me to be, Lord, that I can pattern my life after what your word says to me. When it comes to being the husband that you want me to be, Lord, then I know that I can look at your word and I can pattern myself after what your instructions is given to me and how I am to build upon you and what your word has to say. When it comes to my ministry and when it comes to this ministry, Calvary Chapel, that we can look at God's word and we can see how it is that the Lord desires for us to model the church and pattern this church corporately, how I am to pattern my ministry to be a shepherd, to be a servant to the people of God, to teach them the word of God. And so it's important for us to do that. And for me, I'm not super smart that, you know, I can say, well, I'll figure it out myself, or I'm so creative, or I'm so talented. What I come to realize that I just need to be obedient obedient to what God has given to me and the pattern that he's shown me in every area of my life, and it's the same with you as well. So pattern your life after what he shows you through his word and being the person that he wants you to be and the ministry that he gives to you and, and, and whatever he has for you in your life, being a parent, being a spouse, 
whatever it might be, we can look at the pattern that he gives to us and, and not have to try to figure it out ourselves or try to make it up ourselves. And so we see that the furnishings are going to be given to us. First of all, the Ark of the Covenant, as we read in verse 10, and it shall make an ark of Achaia wood, two and a half cubics shall be its length, a cubic and a half its width, and a cubic and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out, and you shall overlay it, and it shall make on it a molding of gold all around. In verse 12, you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles of the rings on the sides of the ark, that the ark may be carried by them. And the poles shall be in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. And then verse 16, and you shall put into the ark the testimony which I give to you. So the first furnishing that is going to be put into the tabernacle, and then verse 26, we're going to see that the tabernacle itself is going to be described to us. But the tabernacle, as you see in this illustration, there's going to be two rooms in the tabernacle. There's the, the outer sanctuary, or that is called the holy place. And that's where the menorah is going to be, the, the altar of incense, and also the shoe bread table that we'll read about shortly. And then there's going to be a veil that's going to be there. And that separates that outer sanctuary from the inner sanctuary, or that is the Holy of Holies. It's a smaller room. And there's only one piece of furnishing that is in the Holy of Holies, and that is the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant here, as we have just read, is a box. And it's a box that's not a, a large box. Uh, it's um, made two and a half cubics by one and a half cubics. They're not sure exactly how long a cubic is. But they believe it's about 18 inches long. You know, and it's about the length from the tip of your finger to your elbow. So about 18 inches long. So you're talking about a box that's not quite four feet long, almost four feet long by two feet wide. It's not a huge chest, but it's made of acacia wood. It's a hardwood. So, you know, even making a box that's, you know, like this is going to have a little bit of weight, but overlay it with gold, and it's really going to be heavy, isn't it? So that's the ark, um, also called um, the ark of testimony as you go through the Old Testament, the ark of the covenant. And a lot of us are familiar with that piece of furnishing because of a movie that came out about 20 years ago called Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it was the subject on that, the Indiana Jones movie, of that piece of furnishings that they, you know, Indiana Jones went after. And so many of us think of that. That ark is going to have that chest, a lid on top of it called the mercy seat that we're going to read about here in a little bit. So make it out of acacia wood, overlay it with gold, and, um, and in the ark we know according to Exodus chapter 16, you recall that when the children of Israel were given manna, you recall that they're out in the wilderness and manna's going to fall on them for six days. Seventh day they weren't to go out and collect it, but they were to take that manna. Manna means what is it? And, um, and that description of manna that was given, bread from heaven, and they were to take a jar of manna and put it in the Ark of the Covenant. We know from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, that there was not only a, a golden pot that had that manna in it, but also Aaron's rod. We'll read about Aaron's rod when we get to the book of Numbers, but it's a rod that, that would bloom to, to confirm that God had called Aaron to that high priestly office, and we'll talk about that when we get to Numbers chapter 16. And then also the Ten Commandments, the two tablets that are made of stones written with the Ten Commandments. Those three things will be in the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark, there were these four rings that were on the corners. And so they were to make poles on for that Ark of the Covenant that when they would move, and again, remember that the, the tabernacle is a temporary structure. So whenever the Shekinah glory of God would, would lift and move, the children of Israel would pack up their tents, they would pack up the tabernacle, and when we get to Numbers, we're going to see that there's a very specific order in which the children of Israel and the Levites and the priests uh, were to pack things up, and, and the priests and the Levites packing up the, the tabernacle. They all had responsibilities. The Levites, the different families, we will see this family takes care of the tents and the animal skins. This family takes care of the boards and the pegs and all of this. This family of the Levites, what they do after the priests go in and cover up the furnishings, then they would go in and put the poles into the Ark of the Covenant and, and they were to carry it and bear it on their shoulders. 
And so that's specific instructions that were given to them. And the Lord says that if anyone goes in and touches the Ark of the Covenant that they're not supposed to, they're going to be struck dead. And so we know that happened, didn't we? When David, after the, the children of Israel go into the promised land, we know the tabernacle would be in Shiloh there for a number of years. They would go through the days of the judges' rebellion. Uh, towards the end of the days of the judges, we see that finally David, as he would begin to defeat the enemies around him, he wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. So what did he do? He took the Ark of the Covenant, he put it on a cart, that was being hauled, you know, and uh, pulled by an ox. So here they are worshiping. The Ark of the Covenant is there. And the ox stumbles, as you read there um, in Second Samuel. And Uzzah, a guy, puts his hand on the Ark of the Covenant, and he was struck dead, wasn't he? And so David was upset. He was angry at first at the Lord for that. But then he ended up repenting because he realized that the Lord had said back in Numbers chapter 4 that this is the way you're to carry the Ark of Covenant. The Levites on those poles there. That's what those rings were for. And if anybody comes along and touches the Ark of the Covenant that's not supposed to, then they're going to be struck dead. And so again, the lesson in that, when you look at it in Second Samuel, that story of Uzzah being struck dead because he touched the Ark of the Covenant as the ox stumbled and it was about ready to fall off the cart, is don't give God a hand. All right? The thing is we partner with God as he calls us to live and walk with him, as he calls us to ministry. But again, we do it according to the pattern and the ways that the Lord wants us to do it. And that's where he brings that abundant life and blessing in, into our lives as we do it that way. So that's what the rings were for. That's what the poles were for. It was to carry the Ark of the Covenant whenever they would move. So we read about the Ark of the Covenant, the box itself. And then as you move into verse 17, and she'll make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubics shall be its length, and a cubic and a half its width. And she'll make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, and the other cherub at the other end. And she'll make the cherubim at the two ends of its one piece with the mercy seat. Verse 20, And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another, and the faces of the cherubim shall be towards the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give to you. Verse 22, And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So on top of this cherubim, was a lid called the mercy seat. It was made of pure gold, and also on the mercy seat were two cherubim, and it was the place where God says, I'm going to dwell between the cherubim, I'm going to meet with you, and I'm going to speak to you. And so uh, the Shekinah glory of God, the tangible presence of God there between the cherubim. And of course, when Solomon built the first temple and he dedicated the first temple, he said, we know that, that, that the heavens and earth cannot even contain you. None, you know, never mind a, a, a building. And, and so there was where the priest, or the high priest actually, once a year on the Day of Atonement, would go through that veil that separated the, the outer sanctuary or the holy place from the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat was. Made of pure gold, two cherubim, the cherubim, it represents the throne seat of God, Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 10, Revelation chapter 4, right? As Ezekiel saw the vision of the throne chariot of God, it was cherubim. As it was John that saw the throne of God, what was the angelic beings that were flying around the throne of God? It was cherubim, those angelic beings. So they're, they're the guardians of the throne of God. So here was the high priest. It was an awesome thing to go behind that veil there, go into the Holy of Holies once a year after he did elaborate washings and cleansings and sacrifices himself, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to make atonement for the nation on the Day of Atonement. It was a very awesome thing, a, a very uh, intense thing that the high priest would do. Now, there is writings from ancient Jewish writings that what they would do during the years of the, the temple is, and, um, and I don't know if it's true for the tabernacle, is that they would put a rope around the ankle of the high priest. And the high priest, what he did is, what we're going to see here as we continue in Exodus, we're going to see the high priestly garments that are going to be described to us. 
breastplates, you know, with the 12 stones, you know, the mitre, the, the ephod, and all of this. He would take all his priestly garments off. He would just go in with, with simple linen garments that, that he would go in with. And it is believed that he would go in with bells around the hem of his garment. And he would go in behind that veil. Again, the high priest, the only one that would, where the Ark of the Covenant was, the mercy seat there, the cherubim, the, the Shekinah glory of God, the tangible presence of God. There's a picture, if any of you have been, for example, in the Temple Institute in Jerusalem where we went last June, that it shows the high priest and, you know, just the, the tangible presence of God, just his, his look, and it's a pretty cool picture and stuff, what it must have been like. But they believe that the high priest would have bells on the hem of his garment. They put a rope around his ankle because if he was defiled or his heart wasn't right and God struck him dead, no one dared go in there and get him. So they pull him out with that rope. And again, a pretty awesome thing. So as long as they heard those bells going on, they knew everything was okay. But if they heard a thud and all of a sudden those bells stopped ringing, then they would pull out with that rope. So that's what tradition, Jewish tradition says that they would do with the high priest. Hebrews comes along again in Hebrews chapter 10, and you know the verse, that now we can come boldly into the Holy of Holies because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And not just once a year, but any time we want, not for a short time, we can stay as long as we want, and we can do it as many times as we want. And again, I think if you were to tell Aaron and Moses and the other high priests of the Old Testament the wonderful privilege and opportunity that we have to come boldly into the Holy of Holies. That is the, the presence of God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us in shedding his blood for you and for me. And you see, that's what we're going to remember as we open up the communion table tonight, that we have opportunity to come and commune with him and fellowship with him, and we have relationship with the Father because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And I pray that we would always remember that what a privilege it is for you and I to have that fellowship and to have that intimacy and that closeness with the true and the living God because of what Jesus Christ, we come with confidence, not in our own confidence, but we come with confidence in what Jesus Christ has done for us because we have faith in him and who he is and what he has done for you and for me. And so we come boldly into the Holy of Holies. We know, as we will see in Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus dies on that cross, that when he cried out, it is finished, that there in the temple in Jerusalem, that it says that the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, it, it tore in half from top to bottom. In other words, something was happening. The Lord was saying to the people and to the priests, you know, the priests would be out there in, in the you know, outer sanctuary in the holy place, and for the very first time, when that veil rent, in half. When Jesus cried out, it is finished. They could look into the Holy of Holies for the very first time. And what God was declaring in that in Matthew's gospel is, you can now come into the presence, into my presence, because of what my son has just done. And he has just cried out, it is finished. The work is done. The price has been paid. It's open house. And you can come into my presence. And you can fellowship with me and commune with me. And you can... And enjoy me and so that's a marvelous truth that we have as we study god's word so the mercy seat the ark of the covenant some we don't know how big the cherubim were exactly but probably they believe that the mercy seat made of pure gold was probably would weigh somewhere around five to seven hundred pounds so we're talking of something that is very, very heavy that would be there. And there would be four guys that would end up carrying on their shoulders, or maybe it was more as uh, those poles are long. And they would carry the Ark of the Covenant whenever they would move. The Ark of the Covenant we see throughout the, the history in the Old Testament. We don't know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. It's a subject that a lot of Christians are interested in. We don't know what happened to the, the Ark itself. We know that when... Um, the tabernacle came into Shiloh that at the end of the days of the judges as you read in 1st Samuel chapter 4 the children of Israel they weren't right with the Lord they went to battle against the Philistines they were defeated by the Philistines what did they do they went to get the Ark of the Covenant didn't they and they thought that we will go get it and it will you know bring us victory and, and they were looking to a box to save them rather than the Lord and so they went and got the Ark of the Covenant and, and they thought that somehow it was going to bring them victory, but ended up that they ended up being defeated by the Philistines. The Ark of the Covenant ended up in some of those Philistines' 
cities and God struck the Philistines with tumors and, and, and with other afflictions, physical afflictions. So they set it on a cart to go back to Israel. That's why David made such a mistake when he set it on a cart. Because David, you're doing it by the way of the world, the way of the Philistines. So it would come back, it would, it would stay in different places. David brought it up to Jerusalem. We know in 1 Kings uh, chapter 7 and chapter 8, as, as Solomon is given the prayer of dedication, as, as they finish uh, the temple, um, the first temple that they put the Ark of the Covenant there in the Holy of Holies. The first temple stood for about 450 years, from about 950 B.C. to 586 B.C., we don't know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. When the Babylonians came in in their first wave of captivity in 605 B.C., there were three waves, wasn't there, that the Babylonians came in. First one in 605 B.C., that's where they took Daniel and his friends, the choice men of Judah, took them off into captivity to Babylon. And that's where the book of Daniel picks up as Daniel's being trained in the affairs of the Babylonian government. They also took some of the furnishings and some of the utensils out of the temple there in, in Jerusalem and took them to Babylon and put them in the Babylonian pagan temple. You recall in Daniel chapter 5 that it was Belshazzar that he brought out some of those cups and stuff and was toasting to the Babylonian gods of gold and, and silver and wood and all of that. And then there was the handwriting on the wall in Daniel chapter 5. And the Lord said that you are done, Belshazzar, and you're going to be killed tonight and your kingdom handed over to another because he had defiled those things that had been sanctified for the use of the temple. But as the captivity would end, the 70 years of captivity, Zerubbabel would come back. Zerubbabel would come back to begin to lay the foundation of the new temple. Some of the furnishings and utensils and things are listed there in the book of Ezra, but the, the Ark of the Covenant is not listed there. So what happened to the Ark of the Covenant, we don't know. There's a lot of speculation of what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. Some say that perhaps it was lost in Babylon, um, but there's no record of Babylonian records or of, um, you know, uh, in the scriptures that the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Babylonians. Other speculation is, is that the Ark of the Covenant was put under the Temple Mount, that when Solomon built the temple, that he built these secret chambers under the Temple Mount, and that somehow he hid it under there when they knew that the Babylonians were going to come and, and begin to, you know, take the city and begin to, to, to besiege the city. So they hid it under there. You can go to Jerusalem today, and if you talk to certain people, there are those who say that there's rumors that, that the Ark of the Covenant was found about 20 years ago underneath the Temple Mount. They know where it is. They're waiting for the right time to bring it out. It's just rumor. There's no real uh, you know, credibility to those rumors. But that's one of the things that, that has been speculated. Um, you know, I don't know. I think, you know, if Zerubbabel came back, why didn't he pull the Ark of the Covenant out if it was right there? Um, you know, you can go through all this. Some speculate that perhaps Jeremiah, knowing as he was prophesying that the Babylonians were going to come, that he would take the Ark of the Covenant and he would hide it in a cave there in the Judean wilderness around the Dead Sea. So maybe it's in a cave or over in Nebo on the Jordan side, somewhere in that area. There's lots of caves in those mountains and stuff. So perhaps it was hidden there. There's some speculation that the Ark of the Covenant went to Ethiopia. Now, how many of you guys saw that film, um, In Search of the Real Mount Sinai? It was, a, it was a good film. But Bob Cornick, he takes, who made that film, who's in that film, he takes a group of people down to Ethiopia down because there's a place where they claim they have the Ark of the Covenant. And he goes by the theory of during the days of Manasseh, and Manasseh was a terrible, terrible king, and he had plunged, again, the nation deep, deep into idol worship. And so he goes by the notion that during the days of Manasseh, that the priests would take the Ark of the Covenant, and they would go and flee to Egypt. And there in the little island in the Nile River, there is evidence that they've excavated that there was some, a group of Jews that went there about the time uh, of um, you know, the first temple, maybe the days of Manasseh, and they built a little replica of the temple, and perhaps that the Ark of the Covenant went there, and then somehow it ended up in Ethiopia. The problem with that theory is, is, is this, that after Manasseh, his grandson, Josiah, found the book of the law, didn't he? Remember? Second Chronicles chapter 35, 34, where 
he founds the book. They read the book. He tears his clothes. He institutes the Passover once again. But then he orders the Levites to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into the temple. So there's a little problem with that theory. And I've emailed him, and he's never emailed me back on the answer. And I said, you know, I'm not a scholar, but, you know, there is a problem. And that is the Ark of the Covenant was told to be brought in after the days of Manasseh. So a little hole in your theory that you have that sounds very good. So that's the last mention of the Ark of the Covenant. It is interesting, too, as you look at ancient Jewish writings, that there is no record of the Ark of the Covenant being put back into Zerubbabel's temple. Matter of fact, you look at some of the Talmud and some of the, the ancient Jewish writings, they say that there was five articles in the first temple that was not in the second temple, the Ark of the Covenant being one. The other one being the Urim and the Thummim, and then the Holy Anointing Oil, and I can't remember the other two articles. But they say that the Ark of the Covenant was missing. There's no evidence of it, but there are others that say the Jews would not have had that, um, you know, uh, temple there for 500 years without an Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, so perhaps they made another one. We don't know for sure. There is no evidence that when the Romans came in and destroyed the second temple that they took the Ark of the Covenant out. And so you can look at the, the gate there in Rome, and it shows the Jews being carried off, the, the, the picture, the carvings of the Jews coming back in captivity. There's the seven-branch menorah, but there's no Ark of the Covenant. So we don't know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. So there's a lot of speculation of what happened to this most important uh, furnishing that happened in the temple. It's interesting that I believe that as you go look at the Temple Institute today, that they have made a replica of the Ark of the Covenant to put into the temple that they want to rebuild. We know from Bible prophecy that there is going to be a third temple that will be rebuilt. Will the Ark of the Covenant ever be put into that temple? We don't know. Because what is going to be put into that temple? Your studies of the book of Revelation, the Antichrist is going to go in and set up an image of himself, isn't he? And he's going to defile the temple. So what's going to happen in the future, a new Ark of the Covenant put in to the, the Tribulation Temple, we don't know for sure. But that's the Ark of the Covenant and, and a little history of that. And we look at the table of showbread very quickly, and she'll also make a table of a K wood, two cubic shall be its length, a cubic its width, and a cubic and a half its height. And she'll overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. And she'll make for it a frame of hand breadth all around, and she'll make a gold molding for the frame all around. And she'll make for it four rings of gold and put it on the rings of the four corners that are at its four legs. In verse 27, the ring shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles bear the table. And he shall make the poles of a K wood and overlay them with gold that the table may be carried with them. And he shall make its dishes and its pans, its pitchers and its bowls for pouring. And he shall make them of pure gold and he shall set the showbread on the table before me always. So here we see that the table of showbread would be, as you walked into the tabernacle, would be on the right-hand side. It would be 12 loaves of bread on those shelves. And you know how you go into the grocery store, King Supers or Safeway, and they have those bread racks? They're kind of just, that's the way they made it. Um, we went in Temple Institute, and they were showing us, you know, pictures, and, or they had the actual show bread table. Was it the actual one in there? And it was just like that. And just these shelves. And the breads, pieces of bread that they make are fairly large. And so the bread, 12 bread, loaves of bread, would be placed in there, changed on the sab Sabbath, and it was eaten by the priest, and it represented the 12 tribes of Israel. But it also points to Jesus Christ, who is what? The bread of life. And as those priests would eat that bread every week, it showed that they had fellowship with God. It symbolized that they had fellowship with God. And it also reminds us how we have fellowship with God because of the bread of life, Jesus Christ, who comes along and says, Eat of me, and whoever eats of me shall never hunger Whoever comes and drinks of me shall never thirst. He's talking about fellowship. He's talking about intimacy and closeness. When we come to the communion table, when we, we take of the bread, when we take of the cup, it, it symbolizes coming in communion with the Lord and remembering what he has done for you and for me. So the table of shoe bread and then the golden lampstand very quickly. And then you shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be hammered work. Its shafts, its branches, its bowls of Orno, um, ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece. And six branches shall come out of its side, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. And three bowls shall make like an almond blossom on one branch and an ornamental knob and a flower and three bowls 
made like almond blossoms on the other branch with ornamental knobs, and a flower, and so the six branches that come out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. And their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece, and they shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. And you shall make seven lamps for it, and shall arrange its lamps so that they give life in front of it. And the wicks trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. And it shall be made of talent of pure gold and all these utensils. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. So the seven-branched golden menorah, seven branches coming out, the main branch in the middle, three on each side. It was a uh, the only source of light that would be in the holy place on the left-hand side. The priests were to fill those bulls on each of those seven branches up with oil, and they were to trim the wicks and keep the light going. And it symbolized that Israel, the children of Israel, would be the light to the other nations, but also that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And so that seven-branch golden menorah there symbolizing to you and to me that we also are the light of the world, as Jesus would say. And so these furnishings, as we'll continue to look at them, we'll continue to look at the tabernacle. But Father, we thank you that we can, Lord, look at these things and it reminds us of, of you, how you're the light of the world and the bread of life. It reminds us, Lord, that, that you are, Lord, the one that tabernacled among us. And so, Father, as we go through this, we just thank you that we can come boldly into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of of our Lord and our God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, the Savior of the world, the King of kings, the Lord of all lords. And so, Lord, we are very grateful for our position that we have in Christ and that we can come tonight knowing that we can fellowship with you and then we can come to the communion table and as we take of these communion elements, Lord, that we come as believers, remembering what Jesus Christ did for us. As he allowed his body to be broken and his blood shed for forgiveness of sin. That we can come into communion with you, Lord, as we just worship and as we come to the table and as we just focus on you. I pray you just bless this time and that we would have hearts of gratitude. Lord, that... that you dwell in our hearts and tabernacle inside of us through the Holy Spirit. And Lord, that you're here in this place. And I thank you that you are here. And I thank you that you're in the midst of your people and that you've spoken to us tonight. So Lord, may we just continue to draw close to you right now. That as we come to the communion table and hold the elements and partake of them, that you would just continue ministering to our hearts. In Jesus' name. The communion table.